0: Welcome back to the CowCast, episode 33, Shop Talk and some listener Q&A. All right, I'm Eric. Hello, I am James. And we are here on this fine October morning, recording in the Cowabunga A-Studio To talk about all sorts of good stuff. Yep. Uh, First and foremost, to kind of lead things off, we got an email from a new listener. Uh, This is from Tim. It was kind of a nice note, so I just wanted to shout it out. He basically said that uh, he heard about us over at the Comic Book Page Slack channel. For those of you that don't know what that is or where to go, it's comicbookpage.slack.com. Go ahead and check it out. You can jump on and talk about comics and all sorts of stuff. James and I are both active on there. Uh, We just have a good time. It's uh, our friend John Mayo's podcast that kind of spun that up. And uh, for anyone who listens to Drew and Kyle over at Comics for Fun and Profit, Drew's on there. Uh, So there's a good number of folks. But anyway, so Tim says, "Uh, I gave you a try. I loved it so much I went back and listened to most of your podcasts, something I haven't done before when discovering a new one. Uh, We're at the top of his queue right now. And one part that I actually kind of really liked was uh, he said that he likes reading Brian Hibbs' posts that's Tilting at Windmills. However, uh, Brian tends to talk about problems with Diamond and the Big Two. Um, And then he also has heard Chris Everly, the uh, owner of Wild Pig Comics, uh, from Comic Geek Speak. Uh, Unfortunately, Wild Pig Comics has been closed down. uh, And he likes to listen to what Chris has to say about how he tries new strategies to keep and build the customer base over there. So obviously, we kind of fit right in with that. Um, Things that Tim likes are con reports and just being honest about sales. And it says that we're able to give him an appreciation uh, and share our honesty and and give some integrity to what we do. And he just asked that we keep up the the quality and don't worry about quantity. So I guess that, hey, that gives us an out. We've got until January for the next one, right? There you go. Although someone in this uh, room promised a weekly episode in November. Well, I don't know if we promised, but we said we'd shoot for. Yeah, that's pretty much as good as a promise in the podcast world. Fair enough. Way to go. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, anyways, so thanks for the countless hours entertainment and whatnot. Absolutely. Tim, you're welcome. Thanks for uh, writing us a note. It's good to hear that people like what we're talking about. And you know, Tim, for anybody else out there, if you have thoughts, questions, things like that you want to hear about, by all means, shoot us an email, let us know, uh, or, you know, jump on Slack and give them to us. It's actually where the two questions that we have for today came from. So we've got, uh, a buddy on the comic book page, Slack and forums, Perseus, uh, or Don, however you want to go by. But basically, um, we've got two questions. So, which one do you want to go with first? You know what both of them are. Yeah, the dealer's choice that you pick. Alright, so then let's go with uh, what back issues sell well for older... <laughs> uh, the original question was older DC, but we're going to add Marvel and Independent as well material. Um, Don's finding that early 80s Bronze Age is a sweet spot for many readers. Which is very true. So... James, uh, what yeah, do you think?
1: To an extent, I I think that's probably accurate. I would say that the if you had to pick two it, this is gonna sound pretty obvious, I think, to most dealers, but if you had to pick two series that you would that you would wanna have uh if you had to narrow down your back issue selection as a store, it would be Amazing Spider-Man and Batman. Right. For whatever reason, now if you have it's different when you go back to Golden Age stuff. And we're going to kind of cut that out because Golden Age, Batman, Detective, whatever, you can always sell that. There's always going to be a market for it. And a lot of times that market's going to be outside what a lot of people are able to pay. Right. But what do we sell the most of the fastest? It's Silver Age, Bronze Age, Batman, the the core Batman title, and Amazing Spider-Man. Amazing Spider-Man is always a no-brainer. We have a ton of that. Whenever we get amazing, Sp- we've gotten we over the last year or so, we've gotten almost. A f- I mean, we've gotten a couple Amazing Spider-Man ones. We've gotten almost a full run of the series in, um, and it, we've we've had so much product, but it doesn't last. Everybody wants Amazing Spider-Man. It is the uh, one of the blue chip books of the Silver Age, as far as just having an average issue. Uh, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 100s that you can pick and you're going to see a much bigger value than compare it to your average issue of Avengers or X-Men where there's, there's such a decline in value of those issues. Obviously, X-Men, you get the burn run, which is great. But Amazing Spider-Man, you know, around that same era, you've got the first um, Punisher. You've got the death of the Green Goblin. You've got a lot of big books, and you got the issues where he fights the Hulk. You've got a lot of big books in there, and Amazing Spider-Man is just filled with not just keys, but it's such a desirable series that we always go out of our way to buy Amazing Spider-Man, at least in the first about 150 issues, and pay more than we would normally pay to get them. I think some of the other Marvel titles, just to, to give another app comparison. Look at Fantastic Four after issue fifty-two. It's just all downhill from there. Uh, there's not not a lot of huge value in the, a lot of those books. It's not that they're not good books. No, they're great. They're just books. not highly I mean, sought after. Classic Lee Kirby stuff. But right, they, they don't command a premium. Right. Same thing. Daredevil's another great one. I mean, Daredevil was uh, was a later title. It was the, the tail end of those first uh, first release Marvel books uh, in the '60s, but. Uh, Daredevil, once you get past, I mean, we've got a darn near a full run of Daredevil from like 10 up in our back issue bins. And there's so many of those books that are in the 10 to $15 range. You can, and again, we price them realistically. We're not throwing the overshoot price on them, but they just don't sell. And again, not to say that there aren't good books. It's the first bullseye and Electra and stuff like that, but they're, they're sparse, you know, and those are keys. My point with Spider-Man is that the non-keys yeah. Just being a part of that title have value and they have a lot of appeal and more appeal than than any other Marvel from that era. Um, Batman is pretty much the same thing. We're not just counting the the Neil Adams era stuff. If you have a Batman, Silver Age or, or Bronze Age Batman, especially if it's in nice shape, if it's high grade, it's going to sell almost immediately. I mean, we we got a pretty big collection in that had I mean, it was practically every Neil Adams Detective and Batman, and over the next week, we sold every issue of it. Between uh, selling it at the shop, we took it to a show where we sold probably forty or fifty issues of that that run of Batman and Detective, um, and then we had some people that bought some stuff from us online because they saw some pictures we put on Facebook, uh, and they were high grade copies. Some of these books were in the in the four hundred, five hundred dollar range. We had a, a first racial Google that we sold for. 800 it was a nice very high grade copy beautiful copy of the book but you can't you can't sit on that stuff like it does not stay in the store. you go back a little bit further to some of the Silver Age Batman it's really the same thing that core Batman title it's hard to sit on where do, the, the big question that a lot of people say or ask us is where do you start seeing that drop off in interest where we can't keep amazing for instance under 150. we have a hard time at least. Um, Batman is kind of the same thing. Once you hit, I would say, the mid-300s is where there's a a diminishing return on how quickly you're going to move that Batman. Uh, Not to say that we don't have people that come in every once in a while and and pick up a huge run of it, but there's a lot less interest in it. So anything amazing, 150 or under, and Batman... um, around, you know, around 350, 300, maybe, and under, and obviously all the way back to golden age. But, uh, that stuff is just, it's gold. Whenever you get it, it's going to go quick. You're going to get top dollar for it. Um, what, what from that era is, is not a seller is something that has always kind of, um, boggled my mind in some instances. Uh, a lot of, on the Marvel end, we have a lot of back issues of Tales to Astonish and Strange Tales. A lot of mid-grade stuff. Now, there's some keys in there, but like Tales to Astonish, once you get over like issue 70, there's a good 30-so-issue run that we don't get a lot of people looking for. We have a price point where we can sell them pretty quickly, but it's just not a hot book. Strange Tales is another one where there are some great issues of Strange Tales, obviously, but once you kind of get past... uh the uh, about one twenty five, one thirty. A lot of those strange tales, even the Stranco stuff. Now we had kind of an outlier. We were able to sell a ton of Stranko for top dollar because we were at a show and we were right next to Jim Storanko. Yeah, we were the only one. Not and I had had a heads up, so I'd stockpiled Stranco books for like six months, and we were the only ones that really had done that. So we it got to the point where it was a two day show. Saturday we sold out of Storanko. Sunday morning, I was up at like five thirty in, in storage, digging through trying to pull out Starenko reprints I knew I had in one of many boxes, you know. And then we sold sold those. I was selling Tex Dawson Gunslinger issues for fifteen bucks a piece because it was Jim Starenko. Um, but the strange tale So and we obviously we sold our strange all of our strange tales that had Starenko in it. Uh, and covers Starenko covers went even quicker. But uh, that's another run where that. Just that in anthology tales uh, of suspense, strange tales, tales to astonish—they're much slower movers. Mo- keys aside, than other Marvel books from that point on. Um, for DC, I'll tell you what our biggest dog is: our Superman mm-hmm. titles. Lois Lane, Superman, um, Jimmy Olsen. Uh, you you name it if it's a Superman title from that era it's just not hot there's not and again this is minus keys but your average average issue if you compare Superman and Batman back issue prices from around the same point in time there's Superman issues that you can get for five or ten bucks that Batman issues non-keys from that same era are going to be thirty or forty dollar books Batman just commands more from the same time and I don't know if anything's ever really going to kick those Superman titles into having any, any more, much more value than they have right now. It's uh, I don't know what it is. I was talking to another dealer about this um, at a show a couple of weeks ago because I had a couple giant boxes of $5 kind of blowout silver and bronze age stuff. And two-thirds of these boxes were, were Jimmy Olsen, Lois Lane, Superman action and um, uh, adventure comics, you know, uh, Superboy, Superboy in the Legion. Nobody wanted them. It was it was hard to move these books. I ended up selling all of them to another dealer who, uh, who took them to a different market. And I don't know how he did, but uh, if if those were Batman from the same era, couldn't and Detective, they would have. Yeah, I mean, they would have been gone. Somebody would have bought all of them at my price before the show even started. So I don't know what it is about, about those titles, but they're just not, um, nobody's, nobody's bending over backwards to try to find them. Uh, but now conversely, if you would, I talked about kind of the lower end Marvel stuff or, or lower moving, moving Marvel books from that era, but you can look at the Tales to Astonish and Strange Tales and Tales of Suspense from the same era as those Supermans and, there's still going to be much better movies. They're still preferable. Right. So in that instance, um, I would say pretty much silver through bronze, by and large, your Marvel is, is going to be the much better company to have. Minus a few titles and minus keys. If we're just strictly talking about back catalog stuff that is free of keys, Marvel is is much is going to have much more and hold much more value than DC will.
0: And as far as what you see readers gravitating to, not necessarily from a back issue, so let's kind of break it into trades and hardcovers as well. Sure. I mean, you've got some really, really good stuff being created in that era. You've got, in the Bronze Age, I'm speaking, so you have some Uncanny X-Men with Chris Claremont. You've got New Teen Titans with Marv Wolfman. I mean, there's some really good stuff out there that it has a key here and there that sells really well. Well, new, New Teen Titans is, I mean, now we're getting into the 80s. Right, But if we're just looking at, again... if Well, the question was Bronze Age in the 80s, so...
1: Yeah. Well, I guess a bigger question would be when does the modern age technically begin, you know? Because modern, that... Deeper scholars have have battled that question. Well, no, I think that the official designation of of modern is going to be around um, New Teen Titans. I don't think that's really technically bronze. Uh, I think that's a big... If you look at the, the eras and the ages of comics, Golden Age, Silver Age... We won't put in the you know atomic age and uh, those little sub ages that people have put in.
0: Modern age, nineteen eighty five to present, is what I have here. So
1: Okay, let's go with that. Sure, no, that works. You think about what's counted as a modern age book, and that's going back over thirty years now. Mm-hmm. So modern age has been the modern age for longer than golden age was golden age, silver age was silver age, because when people started a- assigning a designation to them it was modern in the mid 80s there that's it's right. a modern book right now everybody of course assigns uh, copper age to be books up through 92 a lot of people are kind of arguing that what is truly this modern modern age began in the early 2000s with marvel's ultimate line and i think that's a good point i think that's a good a good place to maybe designate the start of a different
0: yeah and it's comic age but it's a little murkier, too, as you get newer because there were very clearly defined changes in printing, book size, things mm-hmm. like that, that you could use as a very hard change. Um, I think the most common thing that we see or hear now is when you're talking about bags and boards, they don't use modern. They tend to use current, current size bags and boards. So Yeah, that's true. There's kind of the vernacular adjustment with that.
1: I guess, it, and it depends on the, the supply company, too, because yeah. you see both, but I, I do see current just as much as I see modern.
0: Yeah. That's apt. But either way, I mean, like I said, those uncanny X Men books. I mean, we've yeah. those usually, um, while they don't move nearly as fast as Amazing Spider Man, uh, they certainly Oh, I don't are know. Dogs. If, you, if you have certain runs, certain sects, go uh, quick. We've gotten a lot of high grade
1: burn mm-hmm. X Men, and that stuff moves, mm-hmm. and that you can easily get twenty five to thirty to forty uh, for the non keys if they're nice, nice mid to high grade books, uh, and then the. Of course, you look at the keys. You know, your days of the future pass. I don't think we've ever had that sit on the shelf for more than two days once we post it. Um, then you got a, you got a lot of books from great books from that run. You get the the first uh, Kitty Pride and White Co- uh, Queen, and uh, there's a lot of
0: great stuff that that moves quickly when you get it. So that's a great run. Other but stuff you got to remember too. All right, are, there's some Hulk books that you know had some pockets of first appearances, and the stuff around those tend to go pretty quick and. X-Men had been
1: a stinker in the Silver Age for so long. Um, Once you get past, we've had a lot of opportunity. Well, we've had two opportunities in the last year and a half to buy two full runs of X-Men. Actually, three, if you count uh, another opportunity that we had a little bit earlier on. The problem with buying full runs of X-Men is that the first issue is, is a great book. I mean, it, it, whenever you have an opportunity to buy the first issue, well worth having. Issue four, your your Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, another great book to have. Once you get past that, it's kind of diminishing returns. The first 20 issues are always great books, but you get into the 30s, the 40s. So you start getting into the reprint stuff later on. They're harder movers. They're harder books to, to sell, The especially if you want to make a comparison to Spider-Man. You look at. X-Men in the 70s, 80s issue range uh, versus Spider-Man. And the price of Spider-Man is, is going to be at least double. Um, so X-Men kind of has this peak and valley where early on you get a lot of great stuff. Then you get a lot of stuff that's kind of box filler stuff It shows. You might move some, you might not. Neil Adams' covers are great, but you know eventually you still have a lot of reprint material in there that people just don't care about. We've got a lot of X-Men collectors that start at the Burn stuff or they'll start at giant size and go on from there. They don't really care about the original X-Men. So the Burn stuff is always great. And What I was going to say is the problem with buying runs of X-Men is you're basically buying, when we're kind of appraising it and coming up with, is it worth doing or we're going to make an offer, you're buying it for like the first 20 issues and you're buying it for the, the Burn Claremont stuff, or or the burn Cockrum, and then uh, early Claremont stuff. There are some you know outliers in there. You got your first Gambit and stuff, but really once once you hit like you go beyond the burn stuff and X Men, pretty much that whole run up through five hundred or whatever has very little value. You know, it's one or two dollar books as far as we're concerned when we're appraising them, and or when we're putting them out in the store. Even if you look in our back issue bins, so. It's hard to, it, X-Men's a series that would be very, very hard to sit down and pay what somebody wants for the full run as a dealer because once you sell the first issue and the burn stuff and the other couple big issues that people want, you're going to end up kind of breaking even now you're stuck with a bunch of X-Men books in the 300s and 400s that we've already got ad nauseum, you know. So it's it's tough because um, X-Men just doesn't carry that, Price on the back issue market once you get past burn. Spider Man, on the other hand, we would go uh, Gaga to pay uh, for a full run of Amazing Spider Man. Sure, you know, I mean that's it's it's a completely different thing. Uh, so with with X Men, we've had opportunities to buy full runs, and everybody just wants too much. You know, they they think all those those uh, reprint issues are worth a ton of money, and and that's the kind of thing that that really can break you if you overpay on a big collection like that. It's going to take you a while to get that money back, and you might not even get it back for some of those books. So yep. X-Men's a, a, a great book to have, but I think to tie it into everything else, um, the reason that that burned stuff and the reason that the giant size and 94 on are so in demand is because you had 30 or 40 issues that were kind of just stinkers before that. And, and you go to a lot of shows and you look in X-Men bins. it's like you get They've got X-Men... You know, 50 through 93, and then you hit 94, and there's a giant hole in the collection up until you get to, you know, like 145 or something like that. So, yeah, I don't know. X- X-Men's a, a great series to have back issues of, but only some, if that makes sense.
0: Yep. Caller good on that question? Well, sure. We could,
1: I mean, we could probably keep going on that if we really wanted to. <laughs> You because you had asked about um, well, yeah, independence. independence. And, and Let's talk
0: about independent stuff.
1: Independent underground stuff. Underground, you go back to the '60s, '70s, uh, early '80s. Uh, we don't sell a lot of the underground stuff here. Uh, once once you get you got, you got to remember you had the Ninja Turtle explosion that caused all the black and whites uh, and underground start underground and independent books to be super hot in the '80s. Fish Police. And, All that stuff that everybody stockpiled hoping it would be the next Ninja Turtles. Um, Independent stuff for us, when I really think about having back issues of independent titles in the bins, there's not a lot of stuff that I I think is a a huge go-to. I mean, by and large, if you're going to store stuff in back issue bins in your store for people to come in and buy, you don't have a lot of people coming in to buy independent stuff from the 80s uh, or certainly or earlier. Um, once you get into the nineties though, there's actually some stuff that I always like to have on hand. We sell a decent amount of alien and predator books. So your dark horse alien and predator is always worth having, you know, at least 50 or 60 random books of. And there's a lot of them that are kind of junkier books, but if you have the, the earlier stuff, the first run predator series, the first one run alien stuff, the first couple alien vs predator series, those are always constant sellers for us. Not, they're not very expensive, but You know, they're two, three, four dollar books. Um now, believe it or not, one thing that is kind of a hotter independent uh back issue market would be still to this day, Lady Death and Evil Ernie. People are still after those books, they're still relatively in demand. And if you have the first uh Evil Ernie series from Eternity. That's a, a series that, that can fetch a decent amount. I mean, that first issue can go upwards of two two fifty ungraded. So um, those are those are always good books to have. Um, Spawn is another one where you you know there's a lot of copies of those first twenty 25, 30 issues floating around out there. There's a lot of them, but it's worth buying if you can get them cheap enough because Spawn
0: is always a relative. It's a it's a consistent seller. Yeah, it's not a high dollar break the bank kind of single issue market but it's always there's always somebody looking for it and it's nice to come into a place where you can get you know a solid run for two or three bucks a book
1: yeah we thing. we have i think maybe the first hundred or so issues in the bins and then random smatterings of uh issues after that but that first 30 35 issues we probably have four or five copies of each one in the bins not mm-hmm. to mention a whole short box filled with you know, five to ten copies of each issue. The downside with Spawn is a lot of people that apparently bought Spawn in the 90s and they never bought another comic seem to think that Spawn is some sort of investment book that they're going to retire on. So I would say about half the people that bring in Spawn collections think that their, you know, first issue was worth $50 in 1993, so it's got to be worth a $1,000 now. Well, we've got about 25 copies over here, of the first spawn for 10 bucks a piece. Uh, you know, we give you five, but uh, I'm not
0: going to take your five. Now. I know what's worth. Okay. And then all right. We politely let them know they're welcome to buy all of our copies for the yeah. price we have, if they would like. But
1: that being said, spawn is still a good mover. Uh, a lot of, there's a lot of um, horror books. Uh, if it's, if it's a licensed book, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Halloween, stuff like that is always worth having on hand. Uh, That's good convention fodder. You can sell a lot of those books at conventions. They tend to have relatively low print runs, too, for a lot of those books. So uh, there's a Chucky book, Child's Play, that I remember I grabbed a bunch of them out of a dollar bin years ago. And I found out that they they had a really low print run. They went for about 15 to 20 bucks a piece. So I sold them as a set, took them to a show, and I think I got like 45 bucks for the set of three issues.
0: Well, and we had talked about two when we set up the store. And as we're doing stuff in here, we look at crossover, right? So we have the Alien and Predators books. We have Alien and Predator figures. Mm-hmm. We've got the kind of the horror section, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Living Dead, all that kind of stuff. We have. You know, those different pieces, those books are the type of books that fit both genres. So if we have people coming in looking for figures, masks, whatever, for kind of the horror stuff, mm-hmm. that's a crossover. They see that, whereas also the comic collectors will see it. So it's sure. that's a, it's another reason why those are great things to have.
1: No, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I'd say generally the, the best type of independence is something where you can trace – there's some – still being some interest in it today for some reason or another. Uh, the horror movie, the slasher icons from the 80s are, are always going to be popular, you know, and the fans of them are diehard. Now, uh, you look at most of the independent books that are from the, the 80s, and 90s, and even 2000s that have just come out and, and just died and uh, are in four fur dollar bins everywhere. There's something that's, that's a dead property or they, they were never really a property beyond the, the – Book to begin with, so if you kind of think from the perspective that uh, the stuff that you're hunting for, the stuff that that you might be looking for uh, to hang on to out of dollar bins or quarter bins, or a book that comes out tomorrow that might have some value, is it something that's that's tied into a property or a fandom that is going to be after that for a while? Um, we had bought a bunch of copies of an Iron Maiden biography comic that came out a couple of years ago and I thought we bought a lot of copies of that book I don't remember how many we brought in but I'm a big Iron Maiden fan and I know the fandom of of Iron Maiden and that's we still sell maybe one or two a month off of the the recent shelf just because people come in and they see that there's an Iron Maiden comic book doesn't matter that it's kind of a shoddily drawn uh very very rough biography of the band, it's still in, it says Iron Maiden and it's a comic book. So the Iron Maiden fans will come in and they'll buy it up. And uh, it's an easy sell. And that's the type of thing where I'd be fine having 25 of those copies bagged and boarded in a bin because I know eventually I'll sell through them. Right. So stuff like that is going to be your best type of independent property. But the other thing, the flip side of that is what are the books, what are the properties where... There's so much of them and it's got a gigantic fandom where there's probably a very slim chance that it will go up. Something like a Doctor Who is a good example of that. They pump out a ton of Doctor Who books. Doctor Who stuff is coming out every month for every Doctor. The fandom for Doctor Who is not quite – I mean, there's it's a big fandom.
0: And it's a dedicated fandom.
1: It's very dedicated, but when you compare it to something like uh, Friday the 13th fandom – It's very, very different. It's something that's a little bit more all ages and family friend friendly. So it feels less niche. Um, something like Friday the 13th, those books don't have a large print run. Uh, they're usually, they're not something that's put out all the time. You know, I can't, I can't even think of the last time a Friday the 13th book was put out. Uh, Something like, well, there was a. Uh, here's a great example. Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash. I think Wildstorm put that out maybe eight or nine years ago. And that was a book that was based on this ill-fated pitch where they were going to do a sequel to Freddy vs. Jason with Ash in it. And they couldn't, the, the studios couldn't agree on, or so the story goes, they couldn't agree on who would get kind of the top billing. Because if you have the rights to to Jason Voorhees, you want him to come out on top. And if you have Freddy, you want him to come out on top. And obviously, Ash is a good, well, kind of a good guy. So the by the nature of the story, he should be able to, to beat both of them and come out ahead. Uh, but they couldn't agree on it, so they turned this into a comic book. I don't know how close the, the mini series is, six-issue series is to the script, but that's a book that anyone who looked at it could have figured out back then this is probably a book that won't ever be able to be reprinted because these are properties that are owned by different holders of the property and it's out now but what's going to happen in a year or two will they agree on this book being able to go back to press and for whatever reason it's never been reprinted it's very similar um, to Marvel and DC some of the right, events right right Um, But again, with Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash, that had a much smaller print run than your Marvel vs. DC did. So that's a series. We get it in every once in a while, but we can sell those sets of six issues for 50 bucks a piece. And that's without taking into account like the variant covers, the Campbell covers. So niche stuff like that is great, but the stuff... Star Wars is another great example. There are some valuable Star Wars comics if you go back to the 70s. What are the valuable Star Wars comics from the last 10, 15 years? It's the small print run kind of niche stuff tag and bink are dead is a super uh, huge book right now because they announced that those two characters are going to be in the han solo movie so those were already kind of uh cult classic star wars books that were maybe ten dollars a piece compared to a lot of the other dark horse stuff that was coming out around the same time now those books are going to be a lot harder to find um so it comes down for independent stuff to being very niche having a dedicated hardcore fan base and having a tie to some sort of ongoing intellectual property that's not big enough where they can saturate the market with product. If there's one thing that a lot of these these, um, high-performing in the back market comics have in common, it's that you can't go into a Walmart or a Target and go up to the Jason Voorhees section. You just can't do it. Or the Leatherface section, you know. Target's not going to have a big Texas Chainsaw Massacre
0: uh, <laughs> end cap. cap.
1: Whereas Star Wars or Doctor Who, they're going to have that. So for, for independence, go with something that's niche with a tie to an intellectual property. And I would say a, a great example of something that um, is obviously uh, incorporating that would be Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Because when Walking Dead came out, it didn't spin out of a property, but it became a property. So. Right. And things have spun out of it. Correct. We could go on. See, that's the, we could go on with this question forever, talking about back issues, but eventually we'll have to open the story So we'll go back to it. People have more questions. We'll sure. Just,
0: we'll drone on and, and on and on and on and on. <laughs> um, there you go. So the next question then is uh, basically asking, what are our thoughts on new characters? Uh, particularly Don saying that sometimes it feels... Feels like DC doesn't use all their great characters already, and here they are with Dark Knights, and they're going to try and spin up new characters, and their new line's going to have new characters. So, um, you know, what are I guess what are your thoughts about new characters versus unused characters? Well, we've already talked about overused characters a lot, d- yeah. <laughs> but I was thinking about this
1: the other day. A lot of the characters that I grew up with, and I I was kind of an exception because I had access to a lot of old stuff, and I grew up reading a lot of Silver Age books, but. The characters that were in that were the main characters of of their titles when I was really getting into comics when I was getting subscriptions Green Lantern I got my first subscription to Green Lantern at like issue 45 so I was right there for Coast City getting destroyed and Kyle Rayner becoming Green Lantern so I've the Green Lantern that I read you know sort of in real time as that book was coming out when I really got into the series was Kyle Rayner uh, same thing with, obviously, anybody who started really reading Flash after Crisis read Wally West. Green Arrow, you had Connor Hawke. Um, there there were all these characters that came out of the 90s that are very underused today. I don't think Connor Hawk's even been in Rebirth yet. Uh, he's, But he's a great character. He's different enough from Oliver Queen, but he's a legacy character. Uh, to steal a well-used word from Marvel, he's a legacy character that is different enough, but tied in enough where I think he should be around doing something. He's a great
0: character. Um, well, let's talk about your favorite unused character from teen Titans. Hit me. Martian Manhunter. Yeah. Martian
1: Manhunter. Well, I'll get to Martian Manhunter, (laughs) but I want, I'll just hit a couple of these other nineties characters first. Um, what about Bart Allen impulse? He was a great, great character. He had a whole cool supporting cast. He had Max Mercury, uh, then DC did a really goofy move. They aged him up after Infinite Crisis. They had him become Flash. Then they killed him off, and uh, he was a character that they should have just left well enough alone. Impulse was a fun, fun book. That Impulse, uh, that original Impulse series. If you've never read it and you like the Flash, go back and read Impulse. You can probably pull the whole run out of dollar bins. It's cheap, but it's a great read. It was fun. It was a very fun DC book from the '90s. And they should have an Impulse book out right now to appeal to younger kids, or maybe teens, or I'd even read an Impulse book. if It was as good as the one from the 90s. But Bart Allen suffered the same fate that a lot of characters get now, where they tried to make Bart Allen into a different character. They tried to make him Flash. Bart Allen was not Wally West. He hadn't earned it, and he was a completely different character. He wasn't Kid Flash. He was Impulse. And he had a different enough origin to make him an original character where he didn't need to coast on being the Flash. But because of his failure as Flash, you just don't see Impulse anymore. Connor Hawk, like I said, he's yep. he's gone. Kyle Rayner is obviously still around. He's he's a semi-important character. Um, but, and actually, I'll, my theory on Kyle Rayner's popularity in the 90s and what made him an accept, accepted character to a lot of – Uh, Because I remember the big outcry. Um, I can't remember the name of the group, but there was this group that was like uh, totally pissed off at Ron Mars for turning Hal nuts and bringing Kyle Rayner. And there was some group, I can't remember what their name is. I'll I'll do the research that was like taking out ads against Ron Mars and stuff. Um, And and Kyle Rayner had, it was a rough start for him. He replaced a beloved character that had been around since the 60s. But I think what endeared him to the readership at the time was his use in Grant Morrison's JLA. And uh, and that made him... Oh, are you looking it up? I'm trying. No luck? Just keep going. Okay. So anyways, Grant Morrison, I think, has more to do with Kyle Rayner still being around than anyone else. And, and that's no slight to Ron Mars, but uh, I think a lot more people were reading Grant Morrison's JLA than were reading Green Lantern at the time. Anyways, so they had all these great characters from the 90s that were new characters or original characters, and they're just not used now. So I kind of agree that it's, it's foolish for them to try to make all these new characters with... For just for the sake of creating new intellectual properties. Now, you bring up Martian Manhunter, and that's one that's always stuck in my craw because I love the Martian Manhunter. I think he's a great character. For whatever reason, it has been decided that Martian Manhunter is not a game he's not to the level where they want to make him a, a multimedia character they don't want to stick him in the Justice League movie he's being replaced with Cyborg uh, same thing in the, in the Justice League comic now too they tried to put him in Stormwatch I think during New 52 they don't know what to do with the character yep. he's a he's, Martian Manhunter was never known for being a solo character he was always known as like the backbone of the Justice League And now he doesn't really do anything. You know, he's just kind of an underused, little used, not used character. But he's a great character with an incredible amount of history tied into DC's greatest super team. And they're not using him or not using him much or well. So I I do wonder what the point of creating all these new intellectual properties is kind of feels to me like Bloodlines from the 90s where you had the aliens that came down and uh, in- infected people with uh, Either killed people or gave them the meta gene Or whatever where they grew a bunch of new superpowers And you got all these characters Like Loose Cannon And a bunch of other people that no one remembers The only one that came out of it that was any good Was Hitman But that was only because Garth Ennis was writing it And because Garth Ennis eventually forgot that he even had superpowers So he was
0: just writing them as a Hitman Now that's a segue This Garth Ennis guy I've heard of him Yeah. Does he travel? he might, I don't know. Where's he traveling to? Do
1: you know two, uh, two minutes from my home? <laughs> yeah, he'll be here on the 28th, but uh, to get back to DC, I, I completely agree. I don't know what, if they have a great idea, see, that's a problem. If they have a great idea for a character, then that's one thing because we can always use original characters that have a, a reason for existing. If you're, point is just to crank out new characters then it's just feeling more like the 90s to me than ever before and that's not a good thing your green lantern thing were you thinking
0: about heat heat that was it the website's still up are you serious yeah what was the uh acronym for well originally it stood for hal's oh crud where'd i have it uh (laughs) that was it that was hal's emerald attack team but everyone agreed that sounded eerily like a terrorist organization, so it's changed (laughs) to Hal's Emerald Advancement Team. Okay. But yes, the website still
1: exists. That's incredible. Oh my gosh. Look at that. It looks like... Complete with with clickbait ads. It looks like somebody was getting too excited on Angel Fire back in the day. (laughs) Unbelievable. Well, let's see. Here, I want to read the uh, mission statement. As Green Lantern fans, it is our goal to encourage and advocate the return and exoneration of Hal Jordan's Green Lantern, the restoration of the Green Lantern legend, and the revival of the Honorable Green Lantern Corps. Sign the, the glcorps.org petition. Now, let's see the policies. I want to read the policies. Oh, I... You hit the, the FAQ.
0: This is riveting for those of you listening. You should go check it out. It's it's uh, funny for us. It's uh, actually the website is the letter G heat H E A T dot tripod dot com. So uh oh we gotta get rid of the ad. Um we
1: as a group think such actions as advertising, writing non offensive letters of opinion, and posting on various points on the internet are one of the best ways to achieve this. That the return of Hal Jordan is Green Lantern. Because posting various points on the internet always works. Yes. We do not condone actions that may offend and or upset members of the community, such as offensive letters, and have not or will not commit such acts. They are morally inexcusable and do not help our cause. Now, I don't, uh, I remember some of these things
0: getting a little out of control back then. That's, that's, there was some discussion about that, that they had to change their ways a little bit. (laughs) Anyways. Oh, man. Heat. That's, wow, that, that's, uh, that takes me back. Anyway. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. But what about, what do you think about these new characters that are going to be created versus using the old ones? I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's
1: what I just said. I don't, if there's, if somebody has a really great idea for a character, then I'm excited to to hear it. If it's something that's original and they're passionate about, then fantastic. If somebody just said, get with an artist and create three new characters by uh, November, then I don't, you know, what's the point? Yeah. Well, you I get think- one guy. Then all the characters end up being. I'm not saying that this is the case with these characters, but I'm saying that outlook. You just get a bunch of derivative characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at how much crap came out of the '90s, and yeah, and you had they threw everything up against the wall, and a couple of them stuck, and most of them are forgotten by now. You know, you uh, you want an example of a character that was original, that was organic, and and did not come out of someone. Being forced to create a bunch of new properties. Harley Quinn was the is the best one I can think of. Yep. And even Deadpool originally was a derivative character. I mean, the whole Slade Wilson Wade Wilson joke, you know, he's Deadpool, or I mean Spider Man and uh and Deathstroke with Wade Wilson's name, pretty much. Yep. Uh, but he eventually was turned into an original character. To be his own identity, yeah. So there's, they, they can start one way and end up another, but I think most of the time that doesn't happen. Yeah, I
0: think what my perception of part of the challenge is when a lot of these lines, these um, iconic characters were created, Batman, Spider-Man, things like that, you had the people that created these characters that just had an enthusiasm for it. And mm-hmm. they had a mindset of, look at all these things we can do. And even the first two, three, four maybe transitions into new creative groups that was still there because there was so much unexplored territory. And now you get to a really interesting point where you have decades of history built up uh behind these characters. Soon to be a thousand issues for detective and action and you know things like that, where you get to this point where it's you hate to say it, but it's like the story's already been done. So how do you make it different? And one of the ways is create new characters or change things. And I think it's hard for a lot of creators to create new characters. It's easier for them to take the current characters and put them in a different situation. Case in point, um, Scott Snyder did a little bit of both, right? So he created Mister Bloom, which was pretty good, but then he went to Macbeth mm-hmm. with Gordon. And um, as a Batman fan, that was not only was it a little bit difficult to read; it was that particular arc was very slow moving to me, yeah, and I Miss, did not enjoy Mr. it. Mister Bloom was a villain, yeah.
1: And it, I think creating a new villain is a lot easier than creating a new hero. and making oh, them, And making them seem
0: relevant absolutely. With, with the ability to stick around. But your your points were Deadpool and Harley Quinn. Those sure. are more villains than sure. they are heroes. You could argue both ways at this point based on where stories have well, gone. Well, you know, I think they certainly have been... If they started one way,
1: they've certainly ended up the other.
0: Yes, There's agreed. No 100% agree. So I guess I, I just look at it where... It's trickier. And then you add in the complication of the independent publishers where anyone and everyone can do and create whatever they want. So it's it's a little bit harder to create new characters in a big two environment when you can keep the IP and take it somewhere else. So there's kind of this this push and pull going on in the industry. Now, I think that there's some some good characters that have existed that could be resurrected or brought back or done differently, but at the end of the day... It all depends on the creative people. It From the beginning, it's all based on the creative people. If you have really good creators who have innovative and great ideas for new new characters or existing characters, they'll probably succeed. If you put just a pedestrian creator on it or someone like you or I who's never done this before professionally and just want to jump into it, it's probably going to fall on its face for one of two reasons. One, we don't know what we're doing. And number two, nobody knows who we are. I think we could plot a hell of a book I think we could we just have to write it. We could not script a kindergarten play <laughs> if, if we had to. So I mean, I think that's what a lot of it is. I am excited to see what these new new characters are, and I think that the angle that DC is taking with these new characters spinning out of a, an event in a different part of the multiverse gives them the the flexibility of saying let's create new characters with familiar characters. You know, Batman being the base, but this is not. Batman from the main Earth, you know, the main DC universe. So it kind of gives them a little bit of an out in that sense with still giving them the clout of having Batman kind of be there to kind of shepherd the lineage of these new characters that are coming. So I think that that's really good. Um, Have you ever heard, tell you one thing that that I
1: am thinking of right now, the Rob Liefeld um, uh, appearance on the Dennis Miller show? Yeah, we watched it. So we should I, – and I, I hate to put you on the spot if you can't do this or not. Is there any way we could put a clip of that audio like at the end of the show or something? Yeah, I can – I'll take because the audio. I – now when he's kind of explaining to Dennis Miller what the, what the book is about and he's talking about how these are – now people look back on Youngblood as kind of the worst of the worst from the 90s and what the – the worst of what um, Image had to offer and the whole focus on artists over writers had to offer. But when you listen to Rob Liefeld give his pitch to Dennis Miller on that show, it actually doesn't sound bad. It was the, he had an idea, but the execution was flawed, to say the least. And Liefeld's a nice guy, really nice guy. I've met him, super great guy. But the execution was flawed. And let's face it, it is the whole thing is is derivative. Every character in that story was derivative. You had one guy who was who was uh, basically the thing. You had another guy who was Hawkeye, you, you know. It, and they had instead of Hawkeye, he was Shaft. Instead of thing, he was Bedrock, who then ended up having to change his name to Bad because it was conflicting with the Flintstones, as I can recall. Um, but he explains it, and I just it was something that always stuck with me because. It's like listening to that. I could see how somebody could be excited to read Youngblood, and then you read Youngblood, and uh, this is what I, I'm worried that we're going to get with a lot of this other stuff is maybe somebody does have this cool idea, but because we're kind of going back to this focus on art over writing, are we going to get another Youngblood where there might be a neat idea, but yeah, you never know. Yeah, the 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 big thing that. I get out of most comic conversations with people where we kind of talk about the direction of current books in the store is overwhelmingly a lot of people are pointing back. And obviously if you don't have the frame of reference, if you're a younger reader, uh, you don't get this, but the older readers or the people our age or older uh, keep talking about how it feels like the nineties again. And uh, for better or worse, I think that's kind of where we're, I think that's kind of where we're going.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, hopefully, we've learned a few things from that time, and now we're not going to repeat some of them. Or if we do, we're going to repeat them in a much more delicate fashion. <laughs> well, but here's the thing with DC. DC is... Is this yeah. the one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I found the uh, video James is alluding to. I will take the audio and put it on the end of this episode. Cool. Uh, DC... Is putting out great
1: books. They're putting out books that are that we're selling the hell out. And we've talked about the gimmicks that are kind of coming back. We talked about the lenticulars, which both companies are guilty of doing right now. Chromium covers, right? And and but you know, right now the, the lenticular craze, DC started that. Okay, mm-hmm. well they're selling them. They're selling really well for us, so we're buying them. Now there's metal covers, uh, chromium covers, whatever die cut covers. Okay, well then we would criticize that, but they're doing well for us mm-hmm. right now. Uh, we're going back to sort of pushing the, the artist over the writer. And we were taught, we, we had a stack of old wizard magazines that we get stuff like that and hero illustrated and things we buy a lot of collections from the nineties, people had stacks of those. And I think it's always a cool time capsule to go back and read those. And a lot of times there'll be issues that I remember having when I was like six or seven or eight or whatever. And, um, the big thing I noticed that I pointed out to you was when you looked at, the top 10 books in the wizard hot 10 list or whatever, or the the books where they spotlighted stuff that was coming out next month. What was the single biggest difference that you saw versus how books are advertised right now? Do you remember that? So just the numbers were insane. Well, the numbers were insane, but who was credited first every single time? The artist. The artist, yeah. the artist was credited first in bigger letters, Jim Lee, bigger font, bold font. Oh. Then underneath it, you had the writer. Who's kind of an afterthought, and of course, not always the case. Obviously, if it was an Alan Moore book or something like that, you're going to have uh, that's going to be prominent. But by and large, you look at that the, the way that they pushed the stuff in the '90s. Grab an old issue of Wizard, and and look at that stuff. I promise you, it's it's not going to hurt you too much to look th- through an old Wizard. Uh, it was artists first. And now we're DC's wanting to push that back, and I think that was a, a direct response to what Marvel had said, with artists not moving the needle, which we talked about already. We don't yep. need to dredge the whole thing up, but the whole medium has changed, and it is a writer-driven industry now. And people are buying the books. It's it's like um, the the argument that everybody used to have: Why can't comics be taken seriously as literature? Why can't I take a comic book to school? And, and not have my teacher yell at me and tell me it's not, it's not a real book. Well, now comics are actually really being thought of in that, same, in that same fashion. Not by everybody, but by a lot of institutions. You bring a Brian K. Vaughn book in there, you, you, can, you can get away with it. You know, Ed Brubaker, there are writers and the entire medium that has been given a lot of legitimacy. So I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing to say that we want to go back to having an artist-driven medium. There's no reason we can't have a happy medium that we want them balance correct mm-hmm. now this pendulum swaying back to the 90s uh, I don't know I don't know are we gonna get a bunch of, are we gonna get a bunch of loose cannon bloodlines characters coming out of this I hope not I hope we don't get a bunch of people that nobody remembers in five
0: years or two yeah I think that there's there's a bunch of different variables that are at play right now and I think one of the biggest ones is returnability right we don't have returnability so we're not going to overextend ourselves and get a million copies of some some book we have to be very calculated on what we bring in either way so i think across and and the amount of comic stores that are in existence versus then has shifted so i think that there's a lot of natural market adjustment that's taken place that will um suss out some of those things and comics being on a thinner margin than perhaps they were previously also means that um this, the publishing companies may have a shorter leash for certain things. Uh, so I think that there's a lot more proactive looking at things, you know, as orders are coming in, these publishing companies, whether it's DC, Marvel, whomever, are taking into account variables that we've seen in the past and can say, you know, yes or no. Um, you know, yes, DC's do started a lenticular craze, I guess we could call it a re, re-emergence, but you also look at how they've done it it's been for you know a mini series or a mini event type thing the button the oz effect um you could even go back to the villain variants for batman in the new 52 was it issue 23 point whatever the point ones the different ones but were those the first or did the uh those forever evil uh, could, would, particulars might have been the first ones that could have been i guess but either way um i feel like dc has a very calculated approach mm-hmm. to doing it and it's again no gimmicks to how to get those covers. They're open to order. Uh, Marvel has attached a few qualifiers to getting their lenticular books, and I think that was born of two things. One, it's a way to promote sales, and two, the printing schedule was tight for them to decide to do 53 Mm -hmm. or whatever it was, lenticular covers. um, So they needed to get numbers in ASAP. And how do you keep the numbers low? Well, you make sure that you have to certain measures to get them. But I guess the the difference is, you know, DC seems to take a much more calculated approach. They're making these lenticulars part of an important event. Legacy, you can argue, is an important event for Marvel. It's their big masthead, their big push, their big, you know, uh, everything is different, but it's all the same. But it's new, again, kind of push. I don't want to call it a rebirth type thing because it's not resetting anything, uh, according to them. But long story short, uh, the danger you get is how far do you take the the incentive-based covers which we've talked about again in the in the past so well phoenix has a couple uh well it, it's got
1: a couple very high ratio ones it's got a one to 1,000 and a one to 2,000 which we won't uh, be doing
0: we will be doing the one to 1,000 though yes uh and and i guess you know along those lines let's do you mind we take a few minutes maybe the last 10-15 minutes of this episode and talk a little bit about marvel yeah okay about 10 so um you know, we've talked in the past on the podcast about how DC has been just an amazing partner for mm-hmm. retailers and they do everything they can to try and help you within reason and sometimes go a little bit beyond it. Um, Marvel has taken some significant backlash the last couple of months regarding a lot of their events, uh, some of their character designs. I,
1: I, I broke down on the side of the road. I called AAA. Stuart
0: Trek from DC showed up. <laughs> it was incredible. <laughs> but... um you know, and, and the name that tends to be at the center of a lot of it is David Gabriel because he's the guy that is really, um, he's the, the chief publishing officer, marketing, mm-hmm. sales director. He's the, he's the whole nine and he, yeah. he's a one man show where we know DC has four or five people in that arena doing out right. work. Well, either way, um, David has, You know, rightly or wrongly, been put in the middle of a lot of the spotlight for a lot of anger and frustration from both retailers and consumers of Marvel products. Um, We know that in the past, David has helped us in the store with a couple of shipping issues that we've had. Um, But the level of responsiveness to retailers and just the overall um, his ability to make himself more visible and transparent to us has significantly increased over the last couple of months. And I think that that is due to him wanting to make sure that, you know, we as retailers know that Marvel does care about us because mm-hmm. we are selling their product and yeah. they're really working on, I think, upping that image. And it, it's for us, it's working because we've been able to get a hold of them very easily. Uh, we've had some questions about books. One of them being the art germ, uh, we had the, uh, the the 1 in 100 Art Germ that was then changed to an open-to-order, and then they added a new 1 in 100 Virgin Art Germ, and we had some clarifying questions on what counts for what here and there, and within just a matter of minutes or maybe an hour or less, he was able to get back to us with full details. Um, well, we've I'll got you- the Garth Ennis signing coming up, and uh, we had said, you know, do you do a consignment? How do you do things like that so we can get more product in? And he gave us the rundown very quickly and made it very um, affordable and easy for us to get in a good amount of product to make sure that we can satisfy yeah. the masses I mean he' so helped
1: us out quite a bit it, with that. it's
0: been I, a market improvement in their uh, partnership with retailers well I think uh, the big the big thing to me that jumped out besides just the the
1: actual uh, direct response we've gotten from him when we've had a question or when we've needed something uh, which has been phenomenal in in the last uh, six months I mean he's he's gone above and beyond. And we really appreciate it. But the thing that I noticed more than anything, we have given feedback in several different areas. Uh, we've been we've given feedback. We've said our customers have been asking for this. Uh, we've given feedback as retailers saying, if this uh, was offered as uh, a qualifier for a certain book, we would do this. Just Just wanting to give you feedback, but this is something that we would like to see and we've I don't you know I don't know how many other people are telling him the same thing that we're saying about uh certain books or issues or cover qualifiers but all of a sudden we see that this feedback we've given more than half the time is is being listened to and being applied yep and it really makes I mean it's it really makes you feel like you have a voice that's being listened to or that you have somebody who's who is uh, taking what you're saying and not just saying, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, these guys, of course you want our art germ cover.
0: Yeah, you know? and, and to be 100% you know, honest about that too, we're not talking, like James and I, when we're communicating with David, because we've done it both independently uh-huh. for different things, we're not communicating to him our pleasure or displeasure with characters. These are specifically ordering and product-based right. details shipping but he's those not kinds an editorial, exactly. so he has no say over exactly the
1: direction that they're taking uh, uh whatever whatever character that you don't like you know he doesn't right. he has no say over sam wilson becoming captain america
0: and this is honestly if you go to look at news stories from New York Comic Con you saw that there was a, a retailer panel that got way out of hand with retailers uh-huh. you know griping about the character directions and things like that at david and again like you're saying That's not his arena. So if you, the way that we've approached this whole thing is, are there things about Marvel? And and there's even things about DC, image, you name it. Every publishing company, we could go through and find a couple of things that we would like changed. Fair? Oh yeah. And with Marvel, um, you know, it's, it's knowing where to pick your battles and with who. So from a retailer perspective of how we do our business, the dollars that we're paying, that we're making, the red and the black, uh, there's been a, a huge improvement in our ability to communicate. And part of that could be different formats of communication. We've always been able to email. Uh, but additionally, now we do have that Marvel uh, Facebook group that mm-hmm. grants us kind of more just-in-time type communication. Um, Telegram, telegraph. Right. We've we've hired a, pigeon. the Skywriter that one time. That was huge. Um, but no, so I mean, it's just uh, there's been a huge improvement. And so we wanted to make sure that we took time to say, that uh, as retailers, constructive uh, discussion can take place and it can lead to productive change or productive adjustments in how products are delivered to us. Well, we, yeah, so the the gist of it is we feel that on the publishing side,
1: Marvel is listening to retailers. And that is something that you don't hear a lot of people saying, you hardly hear anyone saying. About Marvel. Right, and you mostly hear the complete opposite of that. But Marvel now is it the audio? Marvel now? Yeah, okay. in In our opinion, Marvel is paying attention. The publishing side, not editorial. Yeah. I can't speak. I'm not saying that they're not listening. I'm just saying I can't even speak for that. But the publishing side of Marvel is listening to retailers. Yep, the and sales that, and publishing. Yep. Correct, and that is uh, a very. I mean, that's big yeah. to us, and we and we notice it and we appreciate it, and we just I seeing what happened in New York comic-con um at that marvel panel it's people are really misdirecting their their rage and their um you know destroyed childhoods or whatever at the people who don't have anything to do with it or very little to do with it you know at the very least if you're going to get mad and you want to vent pick the right person to do it to and in the right venue correct and and in the right way right if you want to get if you want to get a bunch of YouTube views for yelling at Marvel editorial, uh, okay, whatever. But you're not gonna you're not gonna do anything but get them to uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, to have to issue some kind of statement back, you know. And you're gonna they're gonna get defensive about it. You, you're not gonna affect a meaningful change by being an a hole yep. uh, in some YouTube video or posting something on in Instagram. If you want to have a, if you want to affect something, contact them. Yep. So talk to them afterwards in private and say, look, this is what's going on. I would like to get your email address and I would like to send you some of my customer feedback about this because this is something that I believe is going to hurt sales. I don't want to do it in a public setting. I just right. would like you to know what we're hearing and the feedback we're getting. Do it that way. Making it public, it's I don't know, it, it's not going to accomplish what you think it will and it might make yeah. you look like a huge ass.
0: Yeah, and, and it will, you know, there will be people that jump on your bandwagon with the pitchforks and the torches and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, that's not a real professional way of conducting business. Mm-hmm. And yes, we are in an industry that is more creative and, um, you know, leans towards the artsy side of the literature spectrum. But at the same time, if you're running a comic store, you're a business. You are paying yeah. taxes. You are likely paying rent on your building. You're paying salaries, things like that. These these things all mean that you are a professional industry and you need to act accordingly and every time we've reached out in a professional manner to discuss something it's been handled appropriately now we case in point a great case in point is that some books you have to order x percentage of the previous title uh, and go go over that so order 125% more than what you did for issue x of whatever well there's some cases where that title wasn't selling so we didn't bring it in but now we have a customer who wants this, uh, let's say a lenticular variant and we don't meet the qualifier because we didn't order any. Uh, rather than throw our hands up, write a Facebook post about how Marvel wants us to fail and doom all that, we simply send an email to, to, to Marvel and they've responded in kind saying, Oh, yep, we hear you. Um, you know, let's, would you be willing to do this? And they give us an option. Maybe it's mm-hmm. a one for one where you have to buy regular to get a lenticular or it's a, you know, order five, and then you can hit that. You know, things like that. At least they're giving us an option. and They're working with us, and every single time we found a solution that we are more than amenable to. Right. And again, if you're a retailer, you have more of you have more of a voice
1: than than a, a reader. It's true mm-hmm. because you're the one who's you're the gatekeeper for the numbers that are that are being ordered. And Sam Wilson, Captain America, was a book that didn't sell very well for us. And a lot of people I talked to didn't sell for them. So we stopped ordering very much of it for the shelf. We ordered for subscribers. We didn't order much of it for the shelf. So numbers talked. Numbers told the game to, to Marvel that now that, I mean, there's a Falcon book now, but it's Falcon. Right. It's not Sam Wilson, Captain America. The problem that we had was people just were not interested in buying Sam Wilson, Captain America. So we didn't uh, order many copies of it. If you're some idiot that goes to New York Comic Con and yells at, at Marvel that uh, nobody wants a black Captain America, you not only do you just sound like a, Your a credibility complete is zero. moron and an idiot and and you you can't obviously can't articulate anything. Uh, you're not going to get you're not going to affect any kind of change. You just sound like a, a stupid bigot and you're not and everybody's going to Everything that you that you say that you preface by saying nobody wants a black Captain America, whatever that guy said, you're, nothing's going to get done because you you've, you've uh, put the crosshairs on you. Yeah. And, and now the the conversation is changing, the narrative's changing to uh, stupid bigot store owner does not like uh, Captain America being black, which isn't the case. The case is the numbers on this book aren't good. Yeah. We don't have anyone buying it, hence we can't order it. Right because why are we going to order something that doesn't sell? And we've had a lot Make of- that argument and make it in a good way. Right. Once you start bringing something race or or religion or gender into the to the argument
0: in a public setting, you you completely undermine your entire argument. And and we've made this point before so we're not going to rehash it completely, but you know, when you're talking about Sam Wilson as Captain America, the easy and the correct and in, in my opinion argument is not that a black Captain America doesn't sell. The discussion should be more along the lines of when people that see the movies are coming into the store looking for Captain America, this isn't what they're seeing on the screen. Therefore, it doesn't appeal to them because it's not what they're expecting. Doesn't mean it's right or wrong. The character, Falcon's a great character. Or the other, the bigger argument is we had Sam Wilson and we had
1: Steve Rogers. Can the market support two Captain America books at the same time? I think that more than anything is the right. biggest the biggest question, and I think the obvious answer right now is no, it cannot, especially if one of them is Steve Rogers and the other one is not. You're giving people an option. We sold a lot more Steve Rogers. But again, without rehashing that, I just my point is that there are ways that you can make arguments about things like this or that you can present your case, but the way that people did it at New York was the wrong way to do it. Yep wrong and, setting and wrong what they did was points. right what they did was they redirected the anger or uh the dissatisfaction that people had at Marvel and they and they turned that uh, and put the crosshairs on themselves and so they kind of set that they set that um that goal that they had back because they they did it the wrong way
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, they need to approach it from a different perspective and they need to be um did just i guess my point is if you know somebody who's having, having issues, somebody who has a, sto- who has a store, um, tell them to, to send a letter to Marvel. And just say, I just yeah. want you to know, based on our numbers, this character is not working. And our char- our customers are not looking for this character. The but, and, and this is what I would always tell people at work that would come up to me and ask why they got passed over for a job. And they'd come into the office and I'd say, look, because... You present problems. No what, what your bosses want is they want you to present a solution, and so present a solution. Go to someone and say, "Hey, just so you know, the compactor's broken. I fixed it, but we might want to do this." Don't go up and complain that the compactor's broken. How can you do your job? And that's what people use. So it, these people are essentially just bringing forth problems mm-hmm. and no solutions. Form, form a, a reasoned argument and present a solution. Yep. This is what our customers want. This is what they're not buying. What they've told us they don't want. Can we get more of this that we know will sell? Because it all comes down to dollars.
0: Yep. Yeah, and ultimately, it's just about being professional. That too. You more know, you, more you, than yeah, that more than anything, being respectful and professional, and that that can move mountains. So, so we just wanted to make sure we brought that up a little bit. That we've noticed a little bit of a change, but that also, you know, if, if you well, and actually, one other thing, if you are. Uh, aware of a retailer, or if you are a retailer that's having issues with any of the publishers, specifically DC, Marvel, and even Image, um, and you want, or Aftershock, and you just want to know, like, who's having an issue with Aftershock, well, though? Th- nobody should be, but no. if you, if you are having a problem, We've done it in the past where we've reached out to other retailers and asked what's an effective means of communicating X, Y, or Z, or who do you know that we can go to to talk about these types of things? NECA was one of them for us, you know, what, you know, what are our options? So, uh, by all means, if you are a retailer or no retailer having issues, you can reach out to us and ask us and we'd be more than happy to tell you what we've found successful and whatnot. Now, if you reach out to a retailer and they say to, uh,
1: yell at a panel <laughs> on camera that maybe, find another source
0: yeah that's probably not the best way but well um i think that'll close out the issue yeah the issue, we've the got the to episode. open in
1: five minutes so yikes we, we may have to jet
0: so i'm gonna just kind of lead in and say that uh i will throw up throw up the audio right after this of uh rob Leifeld on the dennis miller show talking about the creation of um youngbloods and we'll leave it at that and talk to you next time so for james and myself adios bye-bye
2: This is out there, Youngblood. He's the man behind the nation's best-selling comic book, folks. Just out on the stands today. It's called Youngblood, and here's its creator, Rob Liefeld. Rob, tell me a little bit about Youngblood. You
3: got real life with it, right? Um, yeah. It's a Youngblood is a team of um government like uh, superheroes. They as an answer to like nuclear weapons, they start genetically engineering these super people, mm-hmm. and as a result, they become celebrities. You mm-hmm. know, because um, it, it all started off with I, I thought of um, there was a guy like Superman. He'd be like the world's biggest celebrity, and he'd be doing like Coca-Cola commercials <laughs> right. and, and Nike endorsements. And so I figured, oh, let's try this. And so that's basically what um, we're doing with Youngblood. Yeah.
2: So they're in real life situations. I also see yeah. in here you call for the. Suicidal death of a Saddam Hussein type <laughs> figure or something. Yeah, it
3: was just I came up with that like last year during the d- Desert Storm thing.
2: What's his name? Um, I think we call him Hassan. Yeah, Hussein. Hassan Hussein. Kills didn't want to by his lawyers. Really. Yeah.
3: Sell
2: so, so, um, the so, artwork's killer on it too. Do you do the artwork and the yeah, story? Yeah, I do the whole thing. Yeah. And you yeah. just started your own company,
3: right? Yeah. W- um, myself and six other cartoonists, we all decided to um start our own little company. We're kind of it was we what didn't you know how him? it would do it. Um, it's called the Image Comics.
2: And you so, just got sick of
3: uh, doing it for somebody else? Um, I think we just all got the same itch at the same time. We just wanted to kind of go off and, and do something else. So yeah, so we just uh, formed this company,
2: and this is the first book from it. Yeah. So now, um, what's uh, what will the rules be? Is, uh, when you work for somebody else, Marvel. Yeah. Well, I guess it's state of the art, right? Oh sure, yeah, at the top. What was the hang-up there, though? What didn't you dig about the um, way? They... No,
3: the thing was uh, working for Marvel was great. It's just that uh, I created a lot of um, characters for Marvel over the course of a couple years. And uh, I just couldn't see myself standing doing that over and over and over again. And I decided, well, I'm going to try and do it on my own. And I think that's what we all thought. So uh, we ju- we just gave it a, uh, a chance. This, now now we can own this stuff and see the creative process like all the way through. You know, right. I I um if they want to make a toy or if they want to make you know they've got to like talk to us. You right. know, Instead of us kind of being cut off. So.
2: And changing your characters and yeah, stuff yeah, like exactly, that too, right? Exactly. The you can't like give him blue hair or, or green hair. Yeah. Now Superman one doesn't it sell for like 50k now?
3: Yeah, it's pretty expensive. But that was like years ago. That was that's an old old comic.
2: Yeah, and uh, so maybe one day,
3: young blood. Maybe I don't know. First one. I don't
2: know. Fifty. Who did you like when you were young? Who
3: were your favorites? Oh yeah, all the more, all the stuff you mentioned. Yeah, Matt Murdock. <laughs> Remember his
2: law <laughs> partner? I can't believe this. Yeah, yeah. Barney yeah. Nelson? Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Guy. Um, that ter- ah,
2: this surprises me. Give me, um, su- give me a little trip. Give me something. No, uh, give me X- X-Men. Uh, X-Men? Uh, what do you mean? Like Wolverine or Cyclops? No, no uh, Cyclops. There's Cyclops and, and,
3: and Iceman and the Beast, and there's the
2: Professor X <laughs> yeah. ball guy and the. And who did Ben Grimm always do battle with? Uh, the Hulk? No, the Yancey Street Reggie. Oh, okay. Never- it's Wobber in time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this guy here, um, um, this guy, he was kind of inspired by the thing. His name is Bedrock. Oh, yeah, I can see yeah, a real Ben like, Grimm like, there. there. You remember Ben Grimm? Went into space, got hit with a cathode ray, turned into a peach pit. Yeah. <laughs> that poor bastard, huh? Oh, yeah, he was getting laid a lot. His uh, <laughs> name was The Thing That's Never Used. Okay, uh. The Thing Joke. He's a cartoon guy. Um, Alright, what else do we got coming out? What's your next character? You got another one in the um, plans? Yeah, I got a book called Brigade coming out uh, in like the, the summer. Nick Fury knockoff? No, no,
3: uh uh-uh. No, oh. that's another uh, group of... Uh, like, they're, they're the celebrities in this comic, and this is more like a rebel team. They don't want to be the celebrities and stuff. So
2: we'll see how that goes. You know, it was the coolest when Nick Fury left the Howling Commandos and formed SHIELD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah, like it's the man good. for Uncle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. I loved it when I was on. young. I had no life. Still JD don't. Alright, uh... Hey, look at this. This has caught on, I think. Can we get a shot? Oh, wh- oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> the entire yeah. audience. Oh, that's yeah, oh, that's reading that's the cool. first copy well, of Youngblood. Good view. All right. Well, this is the creator, Rob Liefeld. Rob, thanks for hey, coming thanks on, for buddy. All right, okay. we'll be right back.
0: On behalf of all of us, thank you for listening to this episode of the Cowcast. You can find us on all the main social media outlets, including Facebook at facebook.com slash Cow, on Twitter at incredical, or on Instagram at Cowabunga Comics. To send an email to us directly, send it to podcast at cowabungacomics.com, or to join in the discussion, you can hop on our new Cowabunga Comics forum at comics that's cowabunga with a K, dot com.